Well, good afternoon to everyone, and welcome to our continuing study of the book of Acts. It is great for me to be able to have this opportunity to share from this great and wonderful book. Uh, as you know, Acts, written by Luke, who was a companion of Paul on many of these journeys that we're reading about right now, uh, the we passages, as they are sometimes called, when uh, Luke, as he writes, uses the first person plural. I'm sorry, the, uh, yeah, the first person plural and says we instead of they, third person is an indication that that's when, uh, that's when uh, they were certainly uh, uh, joined together and Luke was a part of the mission, as best we can tell. Um, we've uh, gone through a lot of our studies through this book of Acts and it's been great to have some wonderful folks joining me as we have traveled uh, with Paul over these last uh, few sessions and as we have uh, heard about this exciting history and beginning of the Church of Jesus Christ. Um, it's uh, been a, a great ride and we still have quite a ways to go. One of the most exciting passages really in Scripture, I think, is uh, right there in Acts 27 just before Paul gets to Rome and he sees this uh, he has this incredible voyage uh, with a shipwreck and all kinds of exciting things, but we're not ready to get to that yet. Today, we're still in the second mission journey. Uh, nice to see some friends joining us along. My friend Debbie Spears, great to see you rolling in, and Larry and Lynn, wonderful to interact with you guys some uh, today, and, and it's just a blessing uh, to have you along with uh, us as we uh, study through this great book. Um, these uh, chapters in Acts that are dealing with the uh, mission journeys of Paul are just uh, terrific reading, some of my favorite reading in the Bible. It's, it's just amazing to see how the church of the first century was able to reach out uh, all, all throughout their world as best they knew it and saw it. Uh, and so that is, uh, you know, for us in the 21st century with all of the tools and all of the wealth and all of the opportunities technology and everything that we have, uh, it's just amazing uh, why uh, we can't do better. And uh, as we read through the book of Acts, we realize that it was all about <clears throat> their hearts and their motivation. They, they really wanted to share this message, and they wanted everyone uh, to uh, be able to hear the Word of God. I love the slogan and the motto of one of my favorite uh, missionary efforts, uh, Eastern European Mission. Uh, their simple slogan is this, the Bible, we want everyone to get it. And they are actively seeking to um, get the Bible in the hands of people in their own language all around the world and have done a masterful job of that. I've been able to work with them some previously on some mission trips to Ukraine when we handed out Bibles to uh, kids, Ukrainian kids that were at camp during the summer. Uh, just an incredible experience on Bible Day to see these kids uh, sitting around all day with every second of free time that they had to read their brand new Bibles, first time they had ever had one. Um, just amazing stories, amazing stories. So uh, as we think about <clears throat> the many great works such as EEM, Eastern European Mission, and others that are seeking to do what Paul and Silas are doing as we read in Acts uh, chapter 16 and 17 and 18, part of 18, on this second mission journey, it's um, it's a great blessing to be a part of that. It's wonderful to see my friends Cindy and Eric uh, here. Love you all so much. Miss you terribly. And uh, Jerry and Beverly from down the highway in Canton. Uh, nice to have you joining us as well. And I know we have a lot of others. There have been a lot of people uh, here at West Irwin Church of Christ and Tyler who have told me, yeah, I watch those videos. I really like them. I don't say anything. Uh, but I really enjoy being able to watch them, sometimes live, sometimes not, and that's just A-OK. -okay. Uh, they're usually available on my Facebook page right away after we're finished uh, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I try to share them with our West Irwin Church of Christ Facebook page, and then some others will share them on their pages as well. And then uh, before uh, too much later, uh, they're put on our West Irwin Church of Christ website, which is westirwin.com. Uh, under our social media and resources, our live streaming page uh, under video archives. I put out a little short um, video uh, devotional yesterday and uh, put it, shared it again today advertising this study. 
uh, on a great passage from 2 Corinthians 4 about our being renewed day by day. So I hope you'll take a listen to that and maybe share it if you haven't yet. It's only three minutes. Can you believe that Bill can do anything and preach any kind of lesson in just three minutes? I know, hard to believe, but I did. I did. And uh, these uh, Facebook lessons on the book of Acts and on Matthew that we've already done, uh, yeah, they're a little longer than three minutes. Uh, this one will be as well, as you can tell. Uh, but I've really enjoyed them and appreciate all the encouragement that so many of you uh, have given to me. So um, uh, Lenny and Joe are here, and Brenda, my great and wonderful sister Brenda from uh, the wonderful church, uh, Woodland West in Arlington, where we were for 20 years, where our daughter and her family still are and are being well taken care of by folks such as Lenny and Joe and Brenda and uh, so many other wonderful people. So, <clears throat> so let's get into it. Uh, this, this chapter in Acts chapter 17 is a great chapter. You hear me say that every week, right? Uh, it's a great chapter because it talks about uh, the church of the Thessalonians, as Paul calls them when he writes to them in First and Second Thessalonians. Maybe we'll, I'll remember to say something about that later. Uh, the church at Berea, which was more noble than the church uh, at uh, Thessalonica, and do you remember why? And, um, and then the church at Athens, um, in modern, all three of these in modern-day Greece. Uh, the first two in the northern province of Macedonia just as Philippi was that we saw in chapter 16 as they uh, really began in earnest uh, this uh, second mission journey and ventured into Europe for the first time. Um, but then when we go to Athens and then later Corinth in the next chapter, chapter 18, uh, we're in the southern part of Greece and the province of Achaia. Um, and we're going to get to read about Parr's wonderful, amazing sermon on Mars Hill at the Areopagus in Corinth. Uh, in just a little bit, and it begs the question uh, about uh, the church. Is it a cultural church? Is the church a cultural church? Uh, years ago, Eplegard Smith, whom I respect a great, great deal, far smarter than I will ever be, uh, an incredible man, a really good writer, a man who loves the church, loves the word. Um, Eplegard Smith wrote a book years ago called The Cultural Church. And uh, it's similar to some other books, such as uh, Stanley Harawas and William Willimon uh, have written uh, about our being in exiles uh, in, in this world, um, and others have written uh, some things about that. Um, he wrote about uh, our place in this world and, and allowing the uh, worldliness that we see all around us uh, leak into the church and begin to take over. Uh, the church, and that is a he's right to to call out that alarm, and I certainly agree with that. Uh, but the question is um, a little bit different, uh, as I put it, which is this: Is the church a cultural church? Is the church a cultural church? So um, my answer may surprise you on that a little bit, as I said earlier in a little uh, advertisement on Facebook about this lesson. But I want us to get there first because that's when we get to Athens. And we, uh, and we talk about the kind of, of message uh, and preaching that Paul did in Athens uh, and compare it to some of the other places uh, where he's been. So we'll talk about that, and we'll talk about it from the perspective of cultural church versus worldly church. Are they the same? Um, and I'm not sure that they are. So in uh, Acts 17, before I give everything away, starting in verse 1, Paul is in Thessalonica. And again, as we said um, uh, last Tuesday and before on the uh, first mission journey, it's always good to turn to the back of your Bible and, and take a look at that uh, handy-dandy map that says Paul's second mission journey, or maybe you have one. If you have a study Bible, you likely have one, like I do. I love the NIV study Bible uh, that has it in the text or, or along with the text uh, in those chapters, and so you don't have to turn to the back. Um, other Bibles do the same thing. If you don't have a, a Bible map, you can go online and Google Paul's second mission journey. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. Uh, and you'll have a lot of choices and options. You can also um, open up a, a very good Bible dictionary or Bible encyclopedia or most commentaries on the book of Acts or books about the Apostle Paul. <clears throat> Paul, Apostle of the Heart Set Free by F.F. F. Bruce is about my favorite. And I've preached some lessons from that. And it's a great, great study. Um, 
And so in Acts 16, we're in Philippi, and we read about that last week, uh, the conversion of Lydia, that wonderful, amazing, godly woman that helped support Paul and opened up her home, being the first convert that we have on record uh, in Europe, in all of Europe, and uh, encouraging Paul and Silas and Timothy to come and stay at her house, and all of her household, all of her family were baptized, and just a great beginning to the church at Philippi. And then Paul, um, through an act of kindness, is uh, actually put in jail and beaten and flogged. Um, Paul and Silas are, even though they're Roman citizens, but while in jail, even after all of that, they're singing hymns and praises to God, who they love, who has saved them, and uh, continues to be with them even during dark times. And uh, the Philippian jailer and his family are also converted. In, uh, and the church at Philippi uh, begins in earnest. And then Paul writes a wonderful epistle to them later uh, called Philippians, where he pours out his heart in appreciation and gratitude for their continued financial support of him. Uh, it's a great, great thing. Paul's not going to write a letter to the Bereans. He's not going to write a letter to Athens, but he is going to write a letter uh, to the Thessalonians. And, uh, and so let's start reading in Acts chapter 17, uh, beginning at verse 1, and we go to this great city in the northern part of modern-day Greece, the Roman, first-century Roman province of Macedonia, and, uh, and this city of Thessalonica. It's still around today. I think it's called Thessaloniki or something like that, uh, but um, Paul has a, <clears throat> a very hard experience here. Uh, Verse 1, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And and this is what we've seen all along, right? Paul uh, with Barnabas on the first journey in Acts 13 and 14, and then with Silas and Timothy now going to the synagogue, stopping over at the synagogue and, and speaking uh, to his own countrymen, as he will call them in other places, uh, to <clears throat> about Jesus and about Jesus being uh, the Messiah. Uh, it's something that is very important to Paul. It's and it's exactly the right thing to do. He already has so much in common with them. They're fellow countrymen. They have a shared history of 2,000 years going back uh, to the time of Abraham. Um, and they have shared experiences with the law and with trying to keep that law. And they're familiar with all the same writing. We call it the Old Testament. Uh, they, we, we see the books of the law written by Moses, those first five books, and then all the other books, the books of, of wonderful poetry that's written by David and others, such as Psalms and, and uh, the, the great book of Job, uh, all of the incredible prophets. And it's probably a lot of the prophets that he's reaching back to as he speaks in the synagogue. Remember in Acts 13 and 14, uh, he did that and in going into the synagogue on that first journey. We see Peter uh, Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost while the church was still in Jerusalem, just reaching out to Jews, just starting in Acts chapter 2. Uh, and that great sermon that he wrote, quoting from the Psalms, uh, quoting from some other places. And, uh, and other uh, sermons, uh, Stephen's sermon in, um, in Acts chapter 7 that recounts the history of the Jews and then applies it to the people of Jerusalem of his day and he is killed because of it, becomes the first uh, Christian martyr. All of those are very Jewish uh, sermons. They quote extensively from the Old Testament, as we call it. Uh, they establish that Jesus is the Messiah, and I, and I think they say some of the same kinds of things that Jesus said when he was walking along the road uh, to Emmaus with those two men uh, after his resurrection, and they didn't recognize him, as Luke records in Luke 24, and and yet Jesus uh, tells them, uh, why are you so surprised that, that all of this happened? This is, this is what was supposed to happen. And Jesus shares with them uh, his own story and how uh, it fulfills all those Old Testament uh, promises and, and passages. And then when they finally get to Emmaus and, and they have a meal together and Jesus, as I think William Willimon puts it, uh, this guest acted as host, and that's when he is revealed to them, and then he is taken away from them. Uh, but they say, didn't our hearts burn within us as he shared his own story 
Well, that's kind of what Peter and Paul are doing in these early sermons, Stephen. Others um, uh, probably, uh, as we read uh, in Acts chapter 8, as we read uh, Philip talking to the Samaritans, those people who were from a Jewish background still, not until Acts 10 is the gospel sent uh, out to those who were non-Jews. Um, and so we, this is the kind of thing that they did. What Paul and Barnabas and, Sil and Timothy, or Paul and Silas and Timothy do here is they, they go first to the synagogue. They stay there for three weeks on three Sabbaths. Uh, he reasoned with them, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This was a surprise to all of them, and yet if they had read their Bible closely, they would have realized that that was true. And in a little bit, we're going to go down to Berea, and the Bereans are going to go back after they hear Paul, and they're going to read their Bible and say, is this right? Um, and they'll be called noble for it. Uh, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you, Paul says, is the Messiah. Uh, and making statements like that is what got Peter and John uh, placed in jail. It's what got James, the first apostle, killed for the faith, uh, put to death in Acts chapter 12. It's what got them threatened and beaten and flogged and imprisoned, and it's going to cause Paul more trouble uh, here in Thessalonica and in Berea as well. Uh, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And so they're, again, they're reaching out to those that are from, uh, that are connected with the Jews, the God-fearers who are Greeks, but they are God-fearers and they are uh, a part of the Jewish nation, so to speak, some prominent women. Um, all of these that are uh, pointing to um, to the, the law and pointing to Judaism as a part of their identity. But then you get to verse 5. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, verse 6, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Well, there's two of my favorite statements in uh, Scripture, uh, fun statements from the King James Version especially. Uh, in this passage, but let's talk about a couple of things first. First of all, this guy named Jason. Who in the world is he? Well, we really don't know much about him. He's not really introduced by Luke as being someone there, but he obviously is someone who is a Thessalonian, and he actually is someone who um, uh, apparently opens up his home uh, to Paul and to his um, uh, missionary partners and, uh, and catches a lot of heat for it and ends up uh, actually uh, being in, in jail because of it. Uh, in Romans chapter 16, uh, uh, we read about uh, Jason again as being uh, someone who was a partner with uh, Paul on his own mission journey. It may be because of all the trouble that uh, they bring on Jason here uh, in Thessalonica, as recorded in Acts 17, that Jason decides, hey, look, I'm just going to go with you. And so when Paul writes the book of, of Romans uh, in chapter 16, he refers to Jason, uh, the man from Macedonia and from Thessalonica. And so uh, Jason obviously is someone who becomes a missionary partner with Paul uh, and is able to be with him. And, and likely uh, because of the events that we just read about, uh, Paul decided, you know, Jason, if you want to come with me, you're welcome to come. He obviously was someone who was a convert, obviously was someone who was willing to do that publicly by letting Paul and the others stay uh, with him at his house. And so when they go to uh, try to find uh, Paul um, and Silas, they, they don't find them, and so they just, um, they just arrest Jason, basically drag him out, uh, take him before the city officials, and accuse him of some things. Uh, really bringing a revolt and insurrection uh, against um, the uh, the city and the town and the peace of the town, and specifically against uh, Caesar and against uh, the empire. Um, and so he is called. He is forced to postpone and then and then released. 
Um, and so let's talk about this passage. One of my favorite statements is in verse 5. Uh, the NIV says, but other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. Um, I love the King James Version of this. The King James Version says, lewd fellows of the baser sort. Now, that kind of sounds a little bit like my roommates and I from Oklahoma Christian College days in the 70s, but it's really a lot worse than that. Um, these lewd fellows of the baser sort. What a great description. I just love that wording. Uh, other versions, the Revised Standard Version, calls them wicked fellows of the rabble. Um, uh, and Eugene Peterson's uh, paraphrase, the message, he calls them a bunch of brawlers off the street. Um, I. Howard Marshall, a great, uh, a great scholar and writer, and later, F.F. Bruce, quoting him, uses it also, this term, renamob. And I think that's about my favorite, renamob. That's what this is. This is renamob. And as we see our own social unrest in our country today, and as we've seen it in years past, um, we understand what they're talking about. They're talking about people that are almost kind of mercenaries, that aren't really... Uh, connected with any of the issues that people are fighting for from an emotional perspective, although today many of them are uh, because of uh, some of the injustice that they see in uh, their experience or in the experience of those uh, that they know and love. Uh, but in this case, they weren't connected at all. They were basically mercenaries. They're basically, they go out and they find some guys and they say, hey, we want you to stir up trouble for somebody. And they say, well, how much is it worth to you? And they agree on a price and then there they are. I think that's pretty much what happens here. Uh, some lewd fellows of the baser sort, they don't have any real positive values. Uh, they're open to stirring up trouble for anybody, right or wrong, isn't a big deal. It's just dollars and cents that's the big deal to them. And so they round up this group called that the others some call Renamob, and they hire them out to bring trouble against uh, Paul. And, um, and so they come, and in verse 6, another one of those interesting statements, uh, verse 6, when they did not find Paul and Silas, uh, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, verse 6. And some versions of the King James Version and also the Revised Standard Version say that they have turned the world upside down. I think even the English Standard Version translates it that way. Uh, the NIV says they have caused trouble all over the world. Uh, what about this accusation and what about this phrase? Um, I'm not convinced. Uh, I'm not convinced. A lot of us, and me included, and other preachers and teachers have said, you know, we need to be like those, we need to be like Paul and Silas. We need to be like the first century church because they turned their world upside down. And they point to this verse. And maybe that's, maybe that, maybe they would say, yeah, it's true. Guilty is charged. Maybe they would say that. But I'm not, I'm not convinced. You know, it, it's, it's very similar to what happened with Jesus at his trial when he stood before the Roman governor Pontius Pilate and the Jews accused him of insurrection, basically. They accused him of revolting against the authority of the empire. And, you know, obviously Pilate gets Jesus to affirm that, yes, he is a king, but he's not a king that's any threat to Pilate. He's not a king that's any threat to Caesar. Um, his citizenship is in heaven. Uh, the kingdom is not of this world. Jesus said. So you can continue to function as a member of the Roman Empire and, and not, not feel threatened at all, except for those times when uh, people within the Roman Empire authorities may call on you to worship Caesar as God, which is what ultimately happened with Augustus and those who followed him. Um, and, and a Christian would not be able to do that. That's where we would draw the line is we would say, no, I'm sorry. Remember what Jesus did in the Gospels when he said, hey, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. Well, they accuse them of turning the world upside down. They accuse them of causing trouble all over the world. And I'm not sure if they would uh, say that's, that's true, that's guilt, we're guilty. I'm, I'm not sure they would. Uh, were they seeking to uh, change people's lives and thus change the world? Well, yeah, 
But what their concern was, was to bring people to come to know Christ. Uh, they weren't concerned with uh, turning the world upside down in that sense. Uh, they, when you read the New Testament, you're struck by the fact that they don't, you know, Peter converts this uh, uh, Roman uh, centurion officer, Cornelius, in Acts 10, and there's no indication that he was told to give up his commission to give up his service in the Roman Empire. No indication of that at all. Maybe there, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. I don't think he did. Uh, I think he continued to serve. The jailer in Acts 16 that we just saw last Tuesday, another example, um, he becomes converted, his whole family, and where do they go? They all go right back to the jail where the jailer is, is right there with them, guarding them, and then is involved in their uh, release uh, the next morning. So I, I don't know. I think it's, uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, uh, the King James again and the RSV and others say they've turned the world upside down. Uh, John Stott, a, a great scholar, says they are causing a radical social upheaval. Um, and, and so again, I, I think we look around at our world today and we see a lot of social upheaval and we do see some rioting and looting and things like that that are horrible and and unfortunately uh, this important call uh, for justice and um, and for uh, a good to be done in our in our country uh, has that that message has been hijacked by those like this Renamob who are simply uh, after their own agenda um, and because of that, there are a lot of people that are suffering. Our wonderful law enforcement individuals who are overwhelmingly good. Are there bad cops? Of course there are. But the overwhelming majority of law enforcement officers are simply in it out of a genuine motivation uh, to protect and serve, like the sign on many of the uh, uh, police department uh, vehicles say. Uh, I believe that very strongly. I do believe that there are some that overstep, and when that happens, then they need to be dealt with. And I believe that there's, there's racism is a problem in our country. I, I, I see that, and, and obviously that there's still some work that we need to do. But just as obviously, we have come a long way. And I think that needs to be acknowledged, and somehow or another, let's be able to to not go off on, on one extreme or the other, but to, but to be able to say, okay, what, what, is, what really is God calling us as Christians to do and to be in, in this discussion? And I think, first of all, he's calling us to be faithful to him. Um, and that's what Paul and Silas were doing. They weren't trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. Nowhere do you see that. In fact, just the opposite. In passages like Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 and some others, I spoke about this in a devotional message a while back, uh, right around the 4th of July, uh, and use some of those passages, 1 Peter 2, Romans 13, uh, others that, that talk about this, 1 Timothy 2, and what do, what do they say? They say that Christians should be the, the ideal model citizens. We should be willing to submit, even if we have to pay a price for it, uh, because we refuse to compromise our devotion to God and His Word. Sometimes that will get us in trouble, as Peter and John told them in those first few chapters of Acts, we have to obey God rather than human authority. And when they contradict, that's when we choose God. Well, in choosing God, we may have to suffer. And that's what they did in the first century. They just suffered at times. And, and the Thessalonians are going to be an example of that. Persecution is something that we see from them from this very first uh, time that the gospel was presented to them. Um, and so how would Paul and Silas uh, answer the charge? They're turning the world upside down. I think they would say, well, maybe. But really all we're trying to do is to, is to help people uh, be saved. It's all we want to do. All we want to do is to help each and every individual person, because God will judge us individually, each and every person to come to know Christ as Savior the way we have, uh, so that you can see that your sins are forgiven and so that you can you can live with the, the kind of mission and purpose and joy and hope in your life uh, that you see in us. That's what that Philippian jailer wanted. Uh, he threw himself at them and said, what do I have to do to be saved? Uh, because he realized that he was the one that was lost and in prison, and they were the ones that were saved and free, and he wanted some of that. Um, and, and I think that's what Paul and Silas are doing 
um, are doing here. When Jesus stood before Pilate, the, the thing that got him convicted, the, the, the thing that got Pilate to sit on that, uh, on that seat that, to make that final judgment and pronounce guilt and pronounce uh, the punishment of, of crucifixion, was when they said, anyone, this man called himself to be a king, anyone who calls himself to be a king is no friend of Caesar, uh, because Caesar is our king. And that's what these Jews, imagine Jews said, simply because they uh, had lost all sense of justice and uh, they wanted Jesus put to death by Pilate. And so Pilate did it, uh, Pilate did it. Um, that wasn't what they were trying to do at all. It wasn't what Jesus was trying to do. He had no intention of taking any authority away from Pilate. He had no intention of overthrowing the uh, Roman emperor uh, or the nation of Rome, the empire of Rome. All he wanted was to bring people to the Father. And that's what Paul and Silas were trying to do as well. And that's what we try to do as well. And as long as that uh, coincides with the government, then we're all good. But when uh, there's a question of will we follow the government or will we follow the word of God and the will of Christ, well, then we have to choose uh, God. And that's what Paul and Silas did. And when they did, they suffered for it. And even Jason, this new Christian, uh, suffered for it uh, as well, if he was a new Christian. Uh, but um, an indication seems to me to believe that 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 he was. And so the jealous Jews, they hire Renamob, the lewd fellows of the baser sort, and they run them out of town. Um, and when you look at First and Second Thessalonians, again, one of the amazing things to me is right off the bat when Paul writes to them, he says, to the church of the Thessalonians. And sometimes, you know, it was the Thessalonians church, you know, and we might say, no, 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 wait a minute, Bill, that's not true. It wasn't the Thessalonians church. It's God's church. It's Christ's church. Yeah, I get that. I get that. I understand that the, the body is one and there's many members, but there's only one head and the head of the church is Christ. I get that. I understand that. But whatever church you go to, that is your church. You might say that's your church home, that's your church family. But when Paul addresses the Thessalonians in First and Second Thessalonians, to the Corinthians, he says to the church of God at Corinth. Um, to the Thessalonians, he says to the church of the Thessalonians. This, this was this was their church. This is where they lived, and it was begun in some very distressing times. Just like with Philippi, there was persecution right from the start, so much so that Paul is chased out of town. Uh, interestingly, when he writes to the Thessalonians, he tells them in that first chapter in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5 that the word of God came to you not just with words but with power. And that's what they're seeing. Uh, the power not just of the Holy Spirit, but the power of genuine believers who are willing to suffer persecution uh, for the cause of Christ rather than to deny him. Uh, it's interesting that later on in the book of Acts in chapters 19 and 20 and 27, we're going to read about another man from Thessalonica, Aristarchus, who also becomes a, a participant in Paul's journeys. And in Colossians chapter 4, Paul refers to Aristarchus as my fellow prisoner, this man from Thessalonica. Okay, so we're going to, we got chased out of town. Jason has to post bond and then they let him go. Maybe Jason goes with them here, maybe not. We know that he accompanies Paul uh, at times. And so now we're going to go to the neighboring town of Berea, uh, beginning in Acts 17, verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On a, they thought they were going to be killed. I mean, they, they, they ran out of town um, at night. On arriving there, they went to, guess where? The Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews, Acts 17, verse 11, were, more no, were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. May that be said of all of us. This is such a powerful statement in Acts 17, verse 11. The Bereans were more noble than the, than the Thessalonians. They had more noble character. I think you could say they were more open-minded. They weren't so close-minded when they heard Paul talking about this and they knew the story and they said, that's it, I'm not listening to any more. No, I'm not going to go home and check and see if you're right. I don't care. You're out. 
unfortunately in our climate today in this country the in the politics and religious circles many times there's such a closed mind that we say la la la, la, la. I don't want to hear I don't want to hear what you have to say I don't want to consider what you have to say I've got my mind made up I know what's right and wrong I'm done with that um, and that's a very unfortunate thing that that describes the Thessalonians who ran them out of town and as we're going to see, ran them out of Berea as well. And it does not describe the Bereans. You have probably driven by churches that have the name Berea. Berean Baptist Church, for example. I've seen some of those. And it goes back to these people right here. Why? Because their hearts were genuine. They had a noble character. And the reason that it's said that that's said about them is because they went home and they got open their Bibles and they were challenged by what Paul and Silas were saying and they looked back through those Old Testament prophets and they looked back through those Old Testament scriptures and they realized that what Paul was saying was true, that it was correct, that, wow, I don't know why we didn't see this before, that, that God would use his people to one day be a light for the Gentiles. And yet it was true. And yet it was true. Oh, let's read back again at Isaiah 53 that that Ethiopian eunuch had been reading in Acts chapter 8 and realized that, wow, that describes what happened to Jesus to a T. Uh, it's unbelievable. Let's read again Psalm 22 that, that Jesus quotes from the cross because I think he's thinking about that whole psalm, Psalm 22, when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, verse 1. And then the rest of that psalm talks about this suffering servant and likely a psalmist himself who had, who had suffered and been delivered. And, and Jesus looks back at that, and so much in that psalm is a, is a prophecy of what happened to Jesus and other places as well. They go home. They get out the scrolls. They open up their Bibles to see if what Paul was saying was true. My thinking as a preacher in 21st century America, if People, if it's okay for people to go home and check and see if what Paul was saying was true, it's okay for you to go home and get out your Bible and consider it and pray about it and read some commentaries or talk to some others to see if what Bill is saying is true. We should have that attitude towards every person we read, every book we read. The books are fine to read. The people are fine to listen to, but it doesn't mean that it's true. I saw a great, <laughs> talk, told Joyce about this last night, I saw a great uh, little um, uh, meme or picture uh, photo online uh, the other day, and it, uh, it had this simple statement, and let me see if I can remember it, because I wasn't planning on it, but I just remembered it. It said, and it's, it's talking about how we read things on the internet, or we read things on social media, and I participate in all of that, but I do it with a little bit of suspicion. Because you have to do that. Not everything you read on the internet is true. Not everything that people publish in social media, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the others, not all of that is true. Some of it is false because people just don't know the truth. Some of it is false because people, again, have an agenda. They, they don't care about the truth. They just want to get uh, their way. Um, and so I love this thought from uh, someone who put up a picture out that said something like this. If you believe that everything you read is true, then you should read your Bible. <laughs> I love that. So great. So great. Because so many people are reading the internet and social media, and they're not reading their Bible. I think those are great tools. Again, that's part of the technology that's available for us to do what they were doing in the first century, which is taking the gospel everywhere we can and trying to help people come to know Christ and, and know his word. Um, but unfortunately, so much of that is done without an understanding or a desire even to read what the Bible says. I think people will come away with a whole different understanding of Jesus if they will read the Gospels. Um, this Sunday in my sermon series here at West Irwin Church in Tyler, as we go through the Lord's Prayer uh, this Sunday, um, we're going to be talking about the call uh, to obedience. Uh, when Jesus tells us to pray, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, obedience was a really important thing for Jesus, and you don't get that from just hearing what people say about, about Jesus uh, in the media and in social media and unfortunately in some churches. There's a call in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when you read it, a strong call from Jesus that says, if you're going to be my disciple, then you, you must obey my teaching. 
Um, and that's another sermon for another day. I really want to preach it, and I'm going to this Sunday. Um, may put out a few things uh, about that in a little Facebook devotional tomorrow. We'll see. Um, okay, so that's Berea. Uh, and, and what happens? Well, verse, um, verse 13, when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So the Thessalonian Jews aren't content with just running him out of their town. They're going to run him out of Berea as well. And that's what they do. They likely hire rent a mob again, and they go to uh, the nearby town of Berea and, uh, and stir up trouble there for, for Paul and Silas and Timothy as well. And so they, they take Paul because he's the, he's the guy they want. They take Paul and they send him away immediately. And he ends up in Athens. Um, and that's where we will go to uh, next, starting in verse 16. If you get to your handy-dandy Bible map, then you see that Athens, as I said earlier, and Corinth are in the southern province of Achaia. The northern province is Macedonia, where they went to Philippi, and then to Thessalonica, and then to Berea, and now have, been, have had to leave. And uh, both Macedonia and Achaia are in the modern uh, nation of what we would call modern-day Greece. Uh, Macedonia in the northern half, and um, Achaia in the southern half. And so now Paul is going to Athens, this great center of Greek and Roman idolatrous worship. Um, and so, in Athens, uh, and we'll go to Corinth next chapter, so that'll be on Tuesday. And that's a great study as well. You knew I was going to say that, didn't you? Okay, uh, in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, when Paul, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, remember he goes first, Silas and Timothy are going to join him later, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Again, this is this is the center of the of the Greek um, uh, uh, gods and goddesses, Athens. Uh, this is where um, so much of that history uh, uh, is is based. Um, he was distressed to see that the city was full of idols. It broke his heart. Uh, probably made him a little upset, a little angry. It probably made him a little sad for the people that looked to these um, stone and wood and gold and silver, things made by the hands of men, and call them their gods. Just as Isaiah spoke out against it, just as Jeremiah did, most all of the prophets did, uh, Paul is brokenhearted uh, at what he sees. Verse 17, So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. So he's starting in the synagogue and he's preaching to Jews and to God-fearers, uh, those who had kind of adopted the Jewish uh, customs. But he's also speaking in the marketplace to anybody who will listen. Only the Jews could go in the synagogue. But, and, and so he reasoned there, but he also spoke in the marketplace. And the interesting thing to me here is that those were not the same sermons. Those were not the same messages. And, and I, I encountered this the first time I went to Ukraine when I went to this great little town called Mariupol uh, uh, on the Azov Sea uh, down uh, at the southern part of, of Ukraine um, in that Donetsk region that has been nearly taken over completely by the Russians now. Uh, but then uh, back in 98, 99, 2000, somewhere around in there, um, then uh, we went to Mariupol. We helped establish a, another church there. There was already a church there, but we went to the left bank and established a church there. And I remember the first time I went, I was going to preach a sermon series from the Gospel of John. It was going to be great. And I had all these illustrations ready to go. And when I was there and I was in Ukraine and I was talking to the people and I was going through my notes and I was ready to share this illustration that was so perfect for this passage, I realized I can't use that. I can't use that. I can use it here in America. I can use it in Arlington, in the middle of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. But I can't use it in Mariupol. I can't use it in Ukraine. It doesn't mean anything to them. It doesn't help them at all. And so that's when I began to realize, you know, the message is adapted to the hearers. 
to the audience. Uh, the gospel isn't adapted at all. It doesn't change. Uh, just as we talked about with Paul and Titus and the Jerusalem conference. Um, you don't let that old law seep into the gospel of Christ. That's where you draw the line and say, no, 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 this issue will not compromise on. The word of God is the word of God. But communicating that word and illustrating that word and helping people to understand it and apply it is something that is that has to be adaptable. Uh, it has to be something that is that is cognizant of the people you're talking to so that even just the language that you use. I, you know, I, I spoke in English when I went to Ukraine, but I had a translator, wonderful, godly translators. Oh, they were so wonderful. I miss them terribly. Oh, I miss them. Um, and, and many of them were Christians already. Some of them became Christians through our work. Um, and, and they're just wonderful, wonderful souls. But they were there, and they would translate it into the language of the people. Well, why would they do that? Well, the same reason that I learned it in English and not in Greek or Hebrew. The message was the same, but the application, the language, the illustrations, those things can be different. Um, and I think that's what we're going to see here in Athens. He speaks one type of sermon in the synagogue, but in the marketplaces we're going to see he says something um, with the same heart of the gospel of Christ, but supported by different illustrations. Um, verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Uh, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. You've heard of some of those uh, Stoicism, Ec Epicureans, Zoroastrianism. There's all kinds of, of uh, different philosophies and theologies that were there even in the first century times. They were certainly there and present in Athens. Oh, they loved it. And as we're going to see, they liked nothing better um, than to sit around and talk philosophy and theology. Um, so the middle of verse 18, some of them asked, some of these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers asked, what is this babbler trying to say? <laughs> I'm talking about Paul. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, which got their attention because they loved to hear about that. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news or gospel about Jesus and the resurrection. Well, that, that's a little bit different. Now we've got somebody that's talking about this guy who was killed and died, was clearly seen dead, but was raised to life. Well, that's different. And as we've said before, the gospel of Jesus Christ stands or falls on the resurrection. If you disprove the resurrection, then, it's, then we're done. But if the resurrection is not disproved, if the resurrection has credibility and is attested by witnesses, as we've seen, witnesses who were willing to die, suffer and die rather than recant this message. Well, it's, it's, it's a very credible message. Um, verse 19, then they took him, Paul, and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, this, this great place in Athens where uh, this is what they did there. They, they talked shop, they talked theology, they talked philosophy. This is what Nicodemus, I think, wanted to do with Jesus in John 3 when he came to him at night and he said, oh, we know you're somebody special because nobody could do what you do if God were not with him. I think Nicodemus was expecting this kind of thing and to chat with Jesus' uh, theology all night long. And Jesus interrupts him in John 3 and says, Nicodemus, even you must be born again of water and spirit if you're going to inherit the kingdom of God. Even you, a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Uh, I don't think Nicodemus ever got over that, that discussion. And then later on, at the end of John 7, we see him kind of interacting a little bit in a meeting of the ruling council, saying something like, look, shouldn't we at least give this guy a hearing? And they pounce on him, and he shuts up. And then we hear him of him one more time in the Gospel of John, and that's helping Joseph of Arimathea, another member of the Jewish ruling council, take the body of Jesus down from the cross, openly affirming their faith in him, becoming ceremonially unclean at the time of the Passover, and realizing that they're going to now be marked men uh, as well. Um, such an incredible story. I love that story of Nicodemus. Now we're getting back to Jesus and this a different place. 
um, this Areopagus, and not just Jews, but uh, Greeks and Romans and philosophers of all kinds of persuasion. Um, verse 19 again of Acts 17, Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They ate this stuff up. Um, verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, okay, now notice what Paul uses in this sermon and notice what he doesn't use because he doesn't use any Old Testament scripture. He doesn't talk about the prophets, nothing like that because he's not talking to Jews. He's not talking to people that that would be moved, that would feel that this message of Paul is more credible because of that. And so he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it at all. What he does do is he quotes some of their own prophets and poets. And what he also does is he, he talks to them about God as creator. You want to know what to do with some of your non-Christian friends who aren't believers at all, who aren't familiar with the teaching of Scripture at all? This is a good model. This is what you do. Um, Verse 22, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around, some versions say superstitious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. They had altars to every God they could find, and just in case they missed anybody, they had an altar to an unknown God. That's where Paul starts. Just like Philip started in Isaiah 53 with the, the Ethiopian eunuch, Paul starts right here at this altar to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. Verse 24, he starts with creation. God is creator. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. What a great start. You can't make God. God made you. Paul says this God cannot be contained in temples built by human hands, which is exactly what King Solomon said. He doesn't quote Solomon here because Solomon wouldn't mean anything to them. But when Solomon dedicated that temple that David designed and planned and Solomon built, he said, I, I know, God, that you're, you don't dwell in something even as magnificent as this temple, but... I just pray that when your people pray in this place or pray towards this place, if they're in a foreign land, that you would hear and that you would bless. A great prayer of dedication from King Solomon in the Old Testament. Paul starts right there with this great statement, the God who made the creator, God, who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. Verse 25, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. So all these sacrifices that you're bringing to him, God doesn't need those. That's what people need, not God. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. He is the source of everything that, make, that brings us life. Not only is he creator, he is sustainer, this God, who must be greater than we are. And if we made God in the form of whatever, something from the heavens, an animal, a man, a combination, then that God is lesser than we are, and that's not the true and living God who is the creator and sustainer. Verse 26, from one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. He begins to quote some from Genesis without ever referring to Genesis. Why? Because it wouldn't mean anything to them. Verse 27, God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So he doesn't quote Isaiah. Um, he doesn't quote David. He quotes their own poets. And some of these poets wrote things about the Greek gods, but that Paul uses and says in, in, in the true way, this applies to the one true and living God, not a God that somebody made, but actually the creator God who made 
all of us and who gave us life and who is in us and who is near to us um, and did this in the hope that we would draw near to him. Verse 29, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Verse 30 of Acts 17, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. I don't think that that means that God justified idolatry in the Old Testament times. I just think that Paul is acknowledging, look, there was a special set of people in Old Testament times that were the people of God, the chosen people. But they were meant to bring us to Christ. And as he says in Galatians, now that Christ is here, that purpose is fulfilled. And so I think that's what Paul is saying in Acts 17, verse 30. And what he's saying is, look, if you want to become part of the people of God, then what you need to do is repent. That's, that's what you need to do. You need to change. You need to stop worshiping things that are made by human hands and start worshiping the one who is creator and sustainer and who actually made humanity and earth and heaven and everything we see. What a great statement in verse 30. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, even right here in Athens. It's not just about Jerusalem anymore. It's everywhere, including right here in Athens. Verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so Paul gets to Jesus. He starts with God as creator because that's where his listeners are. But he ends with Jesus of Nazareth crucified on a cross, raised from the dead, pointing back to that empty tomb and affirming that God has made him Lord in Christ, just as Peter said in Acts 2, and now also God has made him judge. Uh, this is what Paul refers to in preaching Christ. He is creator. He is sustainer. He is the giver of life, and he is the ultimate judge of all of humanity. And so because of that, now he calls on everyone to give up these things that don't mean anything and he calls on them to repent and to change and to begin to worship the one true and living creator God. Verse 32, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. It's too fanciful, too crazy. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. They've already begun to think. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, where he had been speaking, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. And so Paul has this great speech, this great sermon in Athens that's not like any sermon he's preached in any synagogue. Why? Because the listeners were different. They were different. And so we come back to those sermons in Acts 2 that Peter preached on Pentecost, in Acts 7 that Stephen preached to the Jews there in Jerusalem, in Acts 13 that Paul himself preached in a synagogue on his first mission journey. And we compare them with Acts 17, and there's no comparison, except that it gives glory to God and it establishes that Jesus of Nazareth is the crucified and resurrected Savior. In Acts 14 in Lystra, when Paul and Barnabas were there, remember the, the pagans wanted to worship them as gods, Zeus and Mercury. Um, and they said, no, 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 that's not it. And what they do is they talk to them about the creator God. They do a little capsule of what Paul does at length here in Athens in Acts 17. And so as we begin to close, I know it's 5 o'clock, but we'll, uh, we'll uh, begin to close. Um, Again, is the church a cultural church? Well, yes, it is a cultural church. Is it a worldly church? Absolutely not. But does the church reflect the culture that it's in? Well, of course it does. Why am I wearing this? Why does my office look like this? Culture. Why does your church meet in a building like it meets in? Culture. Why do you wear what you wear to church? Well, it, culture, you don't, you're not wearing the same thing that the first century Christians wore when they met in Jerusalem or 
uh, in Thessalonica or Berea or Athens? A lot different. Um, why? Because this is 21st century America. This isn't 1st century uh, Macedonia or Achaia. And that's okay. That's okay. We still preach the same gospel. We still have the same word of God. But the rest of it is different. In Ukraine, it was different. It was the same message of the gospel, uh, but it was a different culture. And so as I shared those things, I shared them in a different way than I would share them here. As Paul preached in, uh, in the Jewish synagogue, it was different than what the way he preached in Athens in the Areopagus. Why? Because his listeners were different. And we understand that. We get that. Because of what Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he said, to the Jews I became like a Jew, to the non-Jews or Greeks I was a non-Jew, to the rich, rich, to the free, free, to the slave, a slave, I have become all things to all people, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, so that by every possible means I might save some. And so from that sense, yeah, of course the church reflects its culture. The gospel is taught differently to different people in different places and in different times. That's, that shouldn't surprise anyone. When are we meeting? What time? Uh, where do we meet? What are we wearing? How long will we meet? How long will this sermon go? You think forever, but it won't. In other places, two, three hours, a-okay. What technology are we using? Well, it's a blessing. What illustrations do we use? What language can we worship online? Well, we have that blessing now in the 21st century. We didn't have it not very long ago, but we do now. And what a blessing it is. But I, I want to say a word about that. And in the midst of all of this, I want us to remind ourselves that we're not trying to manipulate others. Persuade, yes, but ethically persuade. One of the amazing things about Jesus and Paul and all the others that we read about in the New Testament is that they always allowed people to say no. To some extent, Jesus even chased some people off. That rich young ruler who said he obeyed all those commands, but there was one thing that, that he didn't obey, and that's the thing that Jesus brings up. And he tells them, well, okay, you're kind of materialistic. So if you really want to meet, be my disciple, then you need to get over that one. And the only way that that's going to happen is if you give away all your stuff. And he went away sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff to give away. That's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to challenge us in those areas that where we have built a wall to separate us from God, from our ultimate service to God. And whatever is on the throne in our heart, that's what Jesus is going to attack. And he's going to say, okay, make your choice. Make your choice. And for many, it's, it's materialism. For many, it's, it's wealth, in this country especially, and in other places too. And just like with the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3, a very rich church that had the reputation of being rich and healthy and alive but was dead, Jesus challenged them as well too. And he said, look, this lukewarmness, this stuff, not going to cut it. I'm going to spit you out. I want your complete devotion. I want to be on the throne of your heart and I will share it with no one else, but I will give it up if that's your choice. It's not manipulation. Persuasion, yes, Paul was very persuasive. He had been trained. He had gone to school. He had studied under Gamaliel. He could do that pretty well, but he never manipulated people. He always allowed them the opportunity to say no. And sometimes when they said no, they said no with violence and and beat him, and put him in jail, and left him for dead. Um, but we persuade, and so we hold on to our integrity, and we refuse to be dishonest. If people will not accept the gospel because we honestly share it with them, then that will be on them and not on us. We do not falsify anything to try to help them to come to say yes. Instead, we treat them considerately, respectfully, with integrity, but we refuse to budge on the message of the gospel. We'll try to help them and explain it to them in ways that they'll understand, in a language that they'll understand, with illustrations and applications that will speak to them because of their cultural setting, but we will not change the word of God. 
We will continue to do that, and we will continue to preach. The gospel is the same, and it is that gospel that we proclaim. And it's interesting that when Paul goes to Corinth, as he tells them in 1 Corinthians 2, and this is where we'll begin next Tuesday, he tells them, look, when I came to you, I was spent. I was worn out physically and emotionally. I had nothing left to give you except the cross of Christ. That's what he says he shared with them when he goes from here in Athens to Corinth. Why? Well, just read Acts 15 and 16 and 17. And you see that Jerusalem conference and that you see that difficulty that he had with Barnabas over John Mark. And you see the trouble he had in Philippi. And you see the trouble that he had in Thessalonica and then in Berea because of the Thessalonian Jews. And now in Athens in the midst of all of this idolatry. And he goes from here to Corinth and he says, I am worn completely out. I have nothing left to give you, nothing except Christ and him crucified. And guess what? That is enough. Whatever it takes, wherever we go, uh, all things to all people, so that by every possible means, sharing the word of God with them will be able to save some. I pray that that's on your heart. And I ask that you pray for me as I seek to do exactly the same thing and share the message of Christ uh, with people wherever I have the opportunity and through the grace of God, even through a social media outlet such as Facebook and the Internet. What a blessing. What a responsibility. All things to all people, whether in the synagogue of the Jews or in the Areopagus, in the midst of idolatrous Athens. All things to all people, so that by all possible means we might save some. God bless you in that journey and in that mission.